0: Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Anyway, good morning. How's it going, everybody? Hope you all had a pleasant weekend um sorry for some reason it's not letting me do the movie view so we'll just stick with this for now um so last week was tough uh lost uh, a good man um my good friend steve has passed away uh He had cancer and um, and uh, yeah so we're gonna talk a little bit about Steve today but we're gonna do it in a really roundabout way so we're gonna go on a journey if you will um, it was it was strange that Josh was filling in for me because Josh was filling in because I had a friend in I know from out of town and was I wasn't able to get to the talk and um, I didn't realize I would also be kind of like mourning um, my good friend Steve, and so Steve was very special. And I and I think the only way for me to explain to you why he was such a special human being in my life, um, I mean, he was special to the world. You know, he was special to history. He was special to the to. To the AIDS movement and the LGBTQ movement and uh, for being a survivor and for the work he did with my mother but um, but he was very special to me as a friend and so that's what I want to want to want to talk about Steve Peters today and and why his life uh, meant so much to me Let's see if we can grab the connections here. Um, I grew up uh, with learning disabilities, my life, most of my life. I grew up with dyslexia. And back in the '80s, uh, uh, you know, people just thought you didn't want to, you were lazy or didn't pay attention or whatever. And, and so I grew up at a school that basically my parents ran) <laughs> And um, Heritage Academy, it was the Christian school um, at, at PTL. Um, and before that, in first grade, actually, my parents sent me to another Christian school. And before that, I was in kindergarten. I was in public school. And I kind of wish I would have been able to stay in public school because I got to take the bus. And that was an adventure um, as a kid. I, I liked that. Um, I thought that was really cool. But... In first grade, I was a part of this Christian school system, and they had the PACE system, uh, ACE, and and basically the concept is everybody works at their own pace. Now, the really funny thing about this, so all the kids on the same age, I mean, it was almost kind of like a communist type thing. Everybody in the same age gets to stay in the room in the same class, but not everybody's doing the same work because everybody might be at a different learning level. And the first grade that I went to that was not my father's school uh, my parents wasn't at the Heritage Academy. Was another school. Um, I uh, they had the okay. First of all, they had dividers, and everybody, all the classes were in run room this first time, so it was really interesting. And so we had dividers, so these big white dividers between each thing, and so you couldn't see the student next to you, couldn't see this any students around you. You just had your little cubicle. It was like the beginning of cubicles. And you had to write a chart of your goals for the day of what work you were gonna, how much you were gonna get done in math and how much you were gonna get done in social studies and and religious studies. And it was, you know, very Christian stuff. And it had these little characters, where you A-C-E and A-C and they had a dog and there's all sorts of Christian uh, stuff thrown in there (laughs) to the learning thing. But I noticed right away that my learning was slower than everybody else and i got these like special books that they had to give me for some learning learning difficulties and i remember the other kids were like oh you got special books but i remember knowing in my mind like they weren't they weren't good and then they realized that as they started getting books in color that was what happened is your grade? the colors would change for the books and you get better anyway so around first grade i started to know that i didn't belong like there was something wrong with me Uh, as far as educational wise And that kind of moved on, kind of continued to grow. As I went into my parents' school, they realized I was struggling again. And a lot of people thought, well, you know, he's Jim and Tammy's kid. They travel a lot. You know, he's born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so he must just, you know, Just be lazy you know and just not care and think he deserves everything on a silver plate was was kind of the idea that I was getting Um, but it was one of those things where it was like no I I, I'm something's wrong like I'm not learning like everybody else is learning I mean ironic that I have all these books behind me now you know Um, and so one of the things you learn to do is you learn coping mechanisms to deal with learning disabilities And with my learning disability, I would learn to kind of like sweet talk teachers or, you know, not get homework or, you know, do certain things that I, so I wouldn't have to like do things alone or that I knew like, oh, when they get that person to help me with my work, I know that they'll tell me how to do it. You know what I mean? So you really learn how to like scam the system because the system isn't, especially private schools aren't developed to deal with people with learning disabilities. Sorry, there's always planes around here. I, I, I don't think we're close to the airport, but I always hear helicopters. So maybe we're just a lot of crime. Um, you know, So I and so I never felt completely accepted around like teachers and people in the system. You know, I never felt like I was included and that there was something wrong with me, but I also had to learn how to talk to them in order to deal with this. Now, so, so, so. The- Long story longer, it's, there was things like I would play sick. I would, you know, stay in, 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 in other people's, you know. There were therapists, count, Christian counselors that also worked in the same offices. So sometimes Vi, who is a friend of mine, I would go stay in her office to get out of school. Because you learn to kind of manipulate these things. Um, given that, you know, so we, I would have tutors as well that, that I would have to meet with during school for, for reading and writing, and I really didn't get reading down until I come. honestly, I don't think I really got it down until I was eleven. And now it's like I love to read, and I've loved to read for years. Um, and and my writing was impossible. It's still bad. My writing is still awful. I, I'm still the world's one of the well, maybe the world's worst speller, but I'm a very bad speller. And uh, and my, I struggled with math and things like that. And and so I had to have these tutors. But when I would have these tutors, what I would end up doing was having conversations with them about life or about my parents or finding out what they were interested in because it was so hard for me to study. It was so hard for me to understand a normal way of studying. Now that I've, I've read books on dyslexia, and, I mean, the first, one of the, one of the fastest books I ever read was a book on dyslexia called My Dyslexia. And I think I read it in like four or five hours. It was... It meant so much to me. I mean, it related so much to it, and I felt like, oh, I'm not alone in this. Um, but while I how I learned really taught myself to read was through comic books. I loved collecting comic books, but I really wanted to know what they said, and so I kind of self-taught myself to read through kind of like trying to sound out and asking people and recognizing words and things like that. It had to be through like a passion and through a different way. It was just. For some reason, school wasn't working with me. My parents had the huge scandal. And in the ninth grade, uh, a huge scandal, and, and, and PTL fell apart. So I ended up in another like weird no school for a while, then another private school. And then we moved to Florida, and I was in another private school. Uh, but I ended up getting kicked out of that private school. I did a talk about that once called the First Academy, not First Academy material. Um, because my my learning disabilities were still in the way, you know, it was so, so it was like you felt this powerless feeling of like, well, I must be stupid because I can't learn. I promise you all this is going somewhere. Um, And I remember in this Florida school, they would do the reading around the classroom and it would get to me and it was just the most embarrassing thing because I was having to try to sound it out. It would take forever, you know, kids being kids would laugh and, and, and make fun of me. Um, at this time, I at least had lost a lot of weight because I was a chubby kid too. So I mean, it was just like, you know, it was, life was tough. So not only did I develop have dyslexia, I also had eating issues and all this kind of stuff. I promise this is going somewhere. Um, so, so through the, my love of comic books, I got reading a little bit better. Um, but I was reading to myself. Now I can speed read, which is really strange. Um, I don't speed read philosophy books because you don't get anything, but I can speed read like fiction books and it's pretty cool. Um, but, but this time is, is you, feel, you know, feeling like an outcast. I always feeling like an outcast. And so what you realize is you try to work towards your strengths. So style, cool clothes, cool friends, you know, you try to like, oh, you know, I'm smoking cigarettes. I'm drinking to deal with the hard times. But, you know, you try to like compensate in other areas. And so when I left, when I got kicked out of out of uh, the first academy, I uh, ended up going to uh, Dr. Phillips High School. But I went from seventh grade to ninth grade. My, my mom and her friend, Carlene, just decided like, you know what? Jay hangs out with Bo, Bo was my best friend, and he was in high school. And she's like, let's just go sign him up. Let's just put him in. We don't even have to say anything. They won't even notice. And of course they didn't notice until about six months into my ninth grade year and I had to have a teacher parent conference, uh, which was kind of uh, embarrassing. But ninth grade was a good year for me. I had a lot of friends in the higher classes, but then that was the first year they just did ninth graders alone across the street from the rest of the high school. So once again, it was this, like, you're the odd man out. You know, you're like, oh, ninth grade center, you know, and they made fun of us. And um, the freshman center is what they called it. And the first few months of school, I did really well with math and things. I was really surprised, like, I was doing so good. But I guess it was because it was, like, you know, going over things I already knew. Um, I did read a book called The Outsiders, you know, and about socias and greasers in the 50s and and that I Loved that book and I could read it to myself. I hated reading it out loud But I would go home and I read it to myself and I loved that book and I loved to because in my class A lot of my friends were like are you a grease or a sosh because I was like this like hybrid preppy punk, you know And I was like, oh, this is so cool like, the world's colliding and people are asking me things about it like somehow I identify with this book and I did identify with this book and and it was it was really cool, um. So, so that ninth grade, I, I struggled, I struggled to get through it, but I found an identity. But the weird thing was, I had an identity with my punk rock friends, and then over the main campus, I had an identity with my popular friends, and so I had these two worlds, and I was trying to be like, how do I, how do I move through these two worlds, and uh, also deal with this learning disability. I'm I'm gonna jump into tenth grade then. I jump into tenth grade. And I'm lost, completely lost. They put me into learning strategy classes or special ed. And I'm taking special education classes. And I mean, I remember friends of mine going like, why are you in front of like the, and they would say stuff like retard classes and things like that that were really cruel. And you'd be like, I'm in those classes, you know. Um, And I was in some other normal classes as well. And I remember I was in this one Uh, science class and I was just so lost that I would just sit there and literally look at the wall like I didn't know what to do I was full of fear I felt like an outcast I felt like I didn't belong I didn't know what the work I didn't know how to do the work and then the teacher thought I was uh, I had a Hispanic teacher and she thought I was just this like white rich privileged kid you know and so she had a lot of resentments towards me and and that wasn't the case. Like, my dad is in prison, you know, my mom's doing the best she can to make ends meet. You know, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm white, but I have learning disabilities, so I don't know how to do anything, so I don't know what to do. And I remember try, I tried to get the teachers to move me to another class just so I could have a, a nicer teacher who would maybe understand the fact that I was just completely lost. Um, wasn't doing homework, wasn't doing anything uh, to the point where they took us... Um, on a, they, they they took us on a field trip to a trade school. And so basically when they take you to a field trip on a trade school, it's it's the idea of, you know, we don't, you're not gonna make it in high school. And you're gonna, we're gonna, you know, you, you need to drop out. That was what they were saying. You need to drop out. You need to learn how to be a air conditioning repairman or a car mechanic. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they were just being like, there's nothing we can do for you. Um, so I just, I, my parents got divorced and my mom moved to California. I stayed in Florida for a little while and uh, they divorced. But why I'm telling you all this stuff is because... For a lot of my life, I fought in this, 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 this feeling of not belonging, this feeling of um, being judged by everybody. You know, um, All my theology for so many years was self-taught. Uh, I did do some seminary classes because uh, the seminary in, 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 in uh, uh, Minnesota opened up its doors to me and allowed me to take some classes and, and it was just fantastic. Um, but mostly self taught through philosophy, through theology, uh, you know, scholarship. You know, I just studied and read books and did that on my own. Um, but, it, it, you know, for me, it was like one of those things where I still felt like I wasn't good enough, you know, because I was around people like my best friend has, you know, a doctorate in philosophy, <laughs> you know, other friend has a, has, has a doctorate from, you know, uh, uh, Princeton theology. <laughs> you know, everybody's got all this educated stuff. You know, and I'm sitting there going, you know, I can hold my own and have these conversations with these guys. Um, but it's still always this feeling of, like, I'm not good enough. And it plays through everything, you know. And, and I think that's why these past few years have been so great for me is embracing my mother's legacy of I've got to be me but I still struggle to be me and to be who I am. And and it's not even like you're feeling like a fraud. It's just feeling like, oh, I don't like, I don't have the things that people hold important, you know, feeling like the odd man out. And why I say all this is because I'm sure a lot of us feel this way in our own lives, is we feel like maybe we don't belong or we feel like odd men out, odd women out, odd people out. And so, you know, you get you, you go to the trade school, and I remember because the people could you could smoke at the trade school, and I was like, oh, I, I like that part. Um, they made us take these alt- these tests, I think altitude tests or something, where you had to like learn. And it, it would tell you what you should be, and on my test, um, philosopher came up. Isn't that funny? Um, they were like, oh man, this guy's screwed because he can't. <laughs> high school doesn't want him. We don't want him. Nobody wants him. Um, so you spend your life learning to to call these coping mechanisms. And I realized how they became very dysfunctional in a lot of my different relationships because I was always trying to overcome this feeling of like insecurity and this feeling of stupidity or being not smart enough or not being ever feeling normal. Like I just never felt normal. And, uh. You know, I had to create an image so that I, you know, so it was like tattooed preacher, you know? Um, Grace guy, you know? And I struggled to be me. I still do. You know, and the thing is, is even to this day, everyone wants you to be something else. You know, everybody wants you to be something that you're not. Liberals want you to follow a certain line. Conservatives want you to follow a certain line. You know, everybody, punk rockers think, oh, this is what punk rock is. Uh, you know, everybody's like, this is what, this. even your individual friends are like, well, this is the politics, and these are why, you know, and you should think the way I do. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so everybody's got these ideas of like, we just continually, like, everybody should be like us rather than embracing the beauty of differences. I saw this quote that said, if you're the same as everybody, like, if if you have no differences than the other, then you really don't need the other. Like, you what's the point? You're all thinking the same. You don't really even have a need for each other. And I think that's what people want. Um, and I felt that in Christianity, you know, and, and it's funny, like I even had a friend who, who became a humanist and I remember talking with him and I felt like, I, and I totally don't even belong to you. you guys. Like you guys are all like humanists and telling me all my stuff's stupid. It was just this thing of like this constant shock of how we create these tribes and these ideals of what's you know, most of the stuff we've all made up. We made up society. We made up all these, But we still make people outcasts, even amongst the outcasts. Like, well, oh, I left Christianity, so I'm better than you. Or, I'm, I am doing this in Christianity, so I'm better than you. You know, it's like, for the love of money, man. Um, think like me. It's time to get on the time machine, everybody. Now we're going to get back in the time machine, and we're going to head back to 1985. I don't think I don't know if you guys aren't talking, but I don't see any comments coming up, um, which is fine. You can be quiet. So amazed by my trying to keep up with my biad schooling stories. Um, so back in '85, um, in the '80s, age crisis was everywhere, and people were terrified of the AIDS crisis. Um, it, I mean, it was like made COVID look like nothing, you know, because you saw how these people were dying. You know, we saw how these people were, these men, especially all these young gay men, you know, w- w- were just wasting away, and dying from, you know, AIDS opened your body to all these diseases. So they were dying from the flu, they were dying from cancers, they were dying from all these things, they were getting sores on their face. And it was this terrifying thing. Um, ironically, Dr. Fauci was around at that time as well. And, uh, and he kind of actually, in the beginning, created a lot of fear around AIDS. And so people were thought you could get it through saliva or maybe even in the air. Um, uh, some of my friends who went through that, uh, Steve especially, uh, you know, like you said, like, you know, you'd go over to eat at somebody's house and they would give you a paper plate and, 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 and plastic forks while they were all eating on the dishes. They didn't want to share dishes with you. They didn't want to share clothes with you, you know, much less be your lover or be there. You know, they didn't want to hold you, and that was one of the reasons why in the 80s, uh, lesbians really became important to these 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 gay men who were dying of AIDS. Of course, uh, you know, straight people got AIDS too, but it was you know, it it, it was pushed in of people being men being pushed into secret, you know. into, you know, having to meet secretly and do the, you know, and it's men who they're sexually charged and things, but it was being (laughs) proscu, I can't remember the word, proscuity, proscuity, somebody will tell me here, they always do, promiscuity, yes, promiscuity, rampant, but, you know, that's what's happening, they've been pushed out of the church, they've been pushed out of place, they've been pushed into hiding, but AIDS started to go, promiscuity, thank you, you know, there was a flight attendant flying over who had AIDS and had AIDS spread horribly. And it was a terrifying time. And it was like, I often hope that people in the LGBT community don't forget what those men were going through in the eighties. I mean, it was, we were terrified. And so my mom saw said, we've got to get somebody with AIDS on here. We got to get, we got to talk to somebody with AIDS. We got to look into this. And, um, Steve Peters is the man that they got a hold of, and he happened to be a pastor for the Metropolitan Community Church. And so you get like a triple whammy. So you don't only have just someone with AIDS who's like, oh, I don't believe in God, you know. But you got somebody with AIDS who's like, oh, I love Jesus. As a matter of fact, I'm a pastor. And my mom and Steve did this groundbreaking interview in 1985. And allowed the church for a minute to see what AIDS was really like and what that it was a human issue, that it wasn't just this gay man issue, even though this was a gay man. But this was a man who was gay, but also loved Jesus and was a pastor who was suffering from AIDS. And they got to see my mother, who was extremely touched by this and realizing, like, what have we done? We've gone wrong. We should be holding these people and loving these people, and we should be caring for each other and not ostracizing one another. The reason they did it via satellite um, I found out much years years later it was is that my my father told me this, is that they were afraid that, that the staff would strike and not show up to shoot the show. And they were also afraid that if he, when they were because they were gonna put him up at the the hotel, they were afraid that um see dis forgetting words is part of dyslexia, by the way. It it happens, it's also part of trauma. <laughs> um <laughs> if you study Freud. Um but they were also afraid, like, at the hotel, like, the people at the hotel, they were just like, you know what, if he comes here, people could be awful. Because my parents knew that Christians could be awful people, and they did not want people to be awful to Steve, so they did it through, uh, via satellite. And my mom did the interview, and you can see clips of it online in places. It's been reenacted in films, movies, and plays. It's been written about. Quite, a, quite an amazing moment. It, 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 it's it's sad that it's a historic moment because it's going basically like oh a Christian showed compassion to another Christian with a with a horrible deadly disease you know um, when you think about the Bible and uh, and who Jesus hung out with and then you know now it's in the '80s it's a shock that you know Jesus hung out with lepers and people with leprosy you know which was the fearful disease of the time. And, and touch them and walk, talk, just talk to them, you know, and then here we get to this point. Oh, it's on YouTube in full length, so yeah, you guys can watch it. It's funny because the people who own all the film for, all the old PTL film is the Assemblies of God. And I had to work with them for this documentary we are working on calling them to get footage for the doc. And they're like, we don't have the one with Tammy and the homosexual." You know, it was like really cold and they said they didn't have it. And I, even in the back of my mind, I'm like, did they erase it? Or did they just get rid of it? Or did they don't want it to be out there? You know, I mean, religion is, is, can be sick. And so I'm nine years old, but I know this is happening. I know that this interview is happening because there's a buzz around it. There's the buzz around it that it's changed because people were thinking about not showing up, because people were afraid of patients, AIDS patients, and uh, especially gay men. They were just, at this point, everybody was terrified and, and afraid that they were going to get it and, 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 and get the swords and go gone and have these horrific deaths that were happening. Um, it was fear, and it's sad how we live in fear and how we create an us and them situation. We even saw it within the pandemic, you know? It was like, all of a sudden it was us and them, you know? And it was real black and white, and we really love that that black and white thinking, and that's a very dangerous way to think, and it, it's very uh, harmful to people. And I think that's what I've battled my, most of my life with my education and things, like, oh, you gotta learn this way and you gotta do this way, and I've had to accept myself and learn to accept myself to a point of going like, this is how I learn. This is who I am. This is how I speak. I'm not like these other speakers. I'm not like these other evangelists. I'm not like a philosopher. I just am Jay, and it's weird, and it's different, but I've got to accept that who I am. Um, So everyone was terrified, Nate. I mean, I remember we got an invitation to see Liberace's home after he passed away, and and we had thought he had passed away of AIDS at the time. And um, and I remember going through his house and even I was just, I was just a kid and I was just nervous because like, oh, there's someone with AIDS that had been in, in this house, you know. Um, I remember even in 95, sitting with an AIDS patient and praying with them and they had cut their face and they were bleeding. And even I felt a little nervousness at that moment, you know, it was just that if, when you lived through that time, it was, it was quite, quite a strange time with a lot, of, uh, a lot of fear-mongering, a lot of scary stuff going on. Uh, these, these people were the outcasts of the outcasts. My, my, my gay brothers were, were the outcasts of the outcasts at the time. And so when I sometimes, even to this day, when I go to LGBTQ events and I, and I see some people be like, well, gay white males, you know, they've got double income, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, guys, let's not forget what they went through in the 80s. And even in the 90s, really, like, like, you know, we forget that this is a group that went through huge stigma, you know, um, but that's always happens when you get into this idea of the hierarchy of suffering. And the hierarchy of suffering is also this thing that kind of divides us. And as I said before, you know, as we know, revolution is a, a ministry or a, a, a group, a group of people searching and seeking grace, wanting to show grace and to have tough conversations and to be able to argue well, and and respect and love each other, um, but you know if we if, if if we forget the past, we will repeat it, the past, and we must not forget the past. We must not forget uh, where these folks have come through and what they have done to be here. Um, so Steve and my mom have this great moment, and. Uh, And this all happens. Now, go into the future where I become, in 2005, 2006, I become an ally to the LGBTQ community. In 2007, my mom dies. I go to a big event, and I meet Steve, and I don't even realize I'm meeting Steve because in my mind, for some reason, I thought there's no way he's still alive. So I thought when I met Steve the first time that he must be somebody else that my mom interviewed at a later time. Like, I just couldn't put it together for some reason. Like, my mind just wouldn't let me... Grasp that Steve was still alive, and my mom had just passed away. So I think I was kind of like in a whole different. Zone. But it was in Arizona, and we and Steve was like we met briefly. But what happened was, is I was doing this. Uh, I've done this think tour with Kristen Becker called "Loosen the Bible Belt," and we go around. and She's a lesbian, non Christian person, and I'm a Christian. And then we have different comedians and musicians, and we would go around the South, and it's called "Loosen the Bible Belt." and talk about why we need to be friends. Like, we don't have to be believe in the same faith. We don't have to do this, but we can be unified, or we can loosen the Bible Belt, and we can have good conversations. And we've done that for a few years. Well, we did a podcast, and Kristen got Steve on the podcast. And I'm like, he's alive? And so I, Kristen's like, I'm stepping back. You did the interview. And, and, and this wasn't that long ago. I mean, this was like four or five years ago, maybe even about four years ago. So I interviewed Steve on, uh, on the, on the podcast and we, we we're just automatically connected. And Steve had such an amazing life. I mean, he had, he was a pastor. He worked at the Playboy mansion. He worked for Playboy at one time. I mean, this guy, his life is like a trilogy, you know? And, um, and, uh, Pete came up with a good idea for for a title of, of like, a book or a movie for Steve. It's like, God doesn't want me. Because Steve, like, went through all the, with AIDS, he went through all the experimental drugs. He went blind. He had cancer. uh, He survived it all. He survived, you know, he took all these experimental medications that should have killed him. He was in a coma. He broke out and boils all, I mean, you know, sores all over his skin. And he survived. He's a miracle. I mean, they they say he's a miracle. There's a a word for it in the medical community. They don't call it a miracle. They call it like an oddity or something. But he he is this. He was that, you know. Um, He got COVID twice, you know, (laughs) and survived. Um, But after that interview, that me and Steve became very close. And the reason I went through all this talking about my school stuff and my learning disabilities and things like that is because there's very few people that I don't feel vulnerable around. And honestly, I don't know if I could... There's not very many people I can name. Steve was one of them. Maybe one or two other people in the that I maybe don't feel like I'm... And what I mean, like I'm like... You know, I I don't feel like I have to hold anything back or be someone else. And Steve was one of those people. Um, I could talk to Steve about anything. There were no secrets between us. You know, I could talk him about my relationships and people I was dating and my divorce and my therapy and my psychoanalysis and the film. And we got to hang out at the film premiere, but we also would, whenever I would go out to LA, we would get together and have coffee um, we would get together and have, um, we would have, um, dinners together, you know, and we just became pals. And there's a lot of times where I had these like late night depressions and we would just be on the phone for like an hour and a half and we would just talk about it. And then there were times I would go month and a half or two sometimes and barely say a word, just, I would send him pictures of the kids. And Steve knew that I was a, kind of this like very introverted person. And he it was just never anything I needed to worry about. You know, I never had to over-explain myself to Steve. Um, it was just a really special time. He um, he became like a grandfather to my kids because um, maybe my dad were not talking at all during that time. It's really strange that we I just, like, have had two conversations, well, one conversation and one kind of small chat talk with my dad now. But... Um, because I, I have boundaries, but there's always a grace door on all my boundaries. So you can come on in if if if, if you feel like it. I'll uh, figure it out, you know. Um, but I was always he was always there for me. And this is something that I we've not talked in great depth about. But uh, when we lost Caleb, uh, I guess about a year and two year and a half ago maybe. Um, Caleb, I'm so bad at time. Um, one of the things that happened with caleb was as caleb fell off the wagon and fell back into drugs he had taken opioids for for, for pain um, and unfortunately became addicted to them when he moved out here uh to seattle uh, opioids and heroin and fentanyl are everywhere like if you see most of the homeless people in in the city they are addicted to fentanyl or opium i mean it's a crisis and um it, it kind of shows you like there's no easy answers, you know, because it's it's more of a liberal city and they're more understanding with addiction and things like that, but it's still just ravaging this city, you know? And of course, you have other places that are hot on crime and it ravages the city. These are just, you know, horrific. This type of drug addiction is horrific and it turns people into the worst of themselves, almost turns them into something else. And so... I was struggling with with my relationship with Caleb because the nature of that addiction is there's a lot of lying, a lot of manipulating. Um, We lost a lot of equipment due to the addiction and was grateful that Steve, who was in recovery himself, was able to sponsor Caleb and help Caleb when I wasn't able to do that. And so there was a big part of that. Like I helped find Caleb a a rehab here in the city, but um, him and Steve would talk on the phone every day, and he was really doing his best to help him. Unfortunately, uh, you know, after Caleb left Seattle, he passed away, and we lost Caleb. Um, Caleb was just a genuine, loving spirit, and it it's, it's so, that—that that is another disease uh, that addiction ravages people's lives, and so we lost another one, you know? Um... And I, I, I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of concern because I brought Caleb to Seattle and things like that. And Steve helped me work through that. Um, you know, when they had the funeral, I, I'm broke. You know, I couldn't afford to fly out to the funeral and do all these things, but I was able to send flowers and do a few other things. And, and you know, Steve has really just been there for me through that. And so for me, Steve is not just this miracle AIDS survivor or this, this, this really saint of the LGBTQ community or even the, even in the Christian community, in my mind. But he was my friend and he, was, he loved my kids. I, I mean, just a few weeks ago before he had to go into the hospital because he had cancer and he was getting treatment for his cancer um, he sent my daughter, my daughter, a fairy garden for her birthday, which is June 5th. And he sent it like a couple days late. He's like, Oh, I'm the world's worst grandpa. I'm like, no man, it's fantastic. You know, and sent her this fairy garden that she has over there in the sun and all this stuff. So, I mean, it's like, matter of fact, I I, when I found out that Steve had passed away, I had sent, I was sending him a picture of Minnie, uh, doing something silly. And then I got a phone call from Steve, but it was uh, his friend Timothy saying, hey, Jay, because Timothy had called me to try to let me know what happened, but I never, if I don't recognize your phone number, I, I, forgive me, I'm not going to answer the phone. Um, so he calls me from, from Steve's, and nice, "Hey, buddy, what's up? And he's like, oh, no, it's Timothy. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, I'm like, how's Steve? Because I thought maybe Steve had fallen into a coma, and he was calling me, and, and Timothy had been there in person. Um, and it was unfortunate, because last time I was in L.A., and I tried to... S- spend some time with Steve he got sick and wasn't able to got covid again and wasn't able to be around anybody but he said S- Steve went to be with your mother about 30 minutes ago and and, that, and it's so strange cuz it took me a second to really figure out what was happening there this was literally a, a week ago on saturday from this past saturday and i was on it was a, a, a call with some of the family and a couple pastors and And I just bawled. I just lost it. I just lost it, you know. Um, I grieved my mom for about one day after she died. And then for three years, I didn't grieve her. And it came back to haunt me and really affect my mental health. And and I even believe my last marriage and things like that. And so I just lost it on the phone with all these people. And they were encouraging, being nice and stuff. But I'm like, here I am, like this guy who's been in ministry, been a been a pastor, Quotes, as they used to do on people used to say to me on Twitter anyway, uh, you know, for almost 30 years now. and, And I, you know, I just couldn't hold myself together because he was my buddy, he was my friend, he was like my like a like an adopted dad, you know. Um I loved Steve a lot, and he was like this guy who loved me unconditionally, and I didn't have to have my guard up and I didn't have to defend my political views. I mean, I can remember, like, Steve would always call me after a talk, and we'd talk about the talk, and sometimes he'd be like, are you sure the Galatians were from the Gauls? Were the Gauls that you're thinking of? And so we'd get deep dive in, and I was like, I remember like, All right, they are, Steve, ha-ha, you know? And we'd laugh about, like, me getting, the, you know, just stuff like that. It was just like we had great theological conversations. We had great relationship conversations. We had great conversations about sex, you know, um, So it was really a cool, cool friendship. It was really a wonderful human being, so kind. And, you know, so, so, You know, and and not unconditional love where it's like he loved me unconditionally where I could be abusive. You know, I think sometimes that's where we make the mistakes with unconditional love. Like, well, I just love them unconditionally so they can just hate me forever and I'm just going to love them. (laughs) I'm just going to stay in this horrible marriage because it's unconditional. Um, But with Steve, it was one of these things where it was just like, you're crazy, man. I'm crazy. Life is crazy. We both had wild lives and, and lived wild lives and seen things that most people have never seen. And it's okay you know it's a trip you know and it's tough and you know we lost caleb you know we went through that together we lost caleb and and that was tough and we we still just i don't know went through the premiere together because it was wild it was crazy to see all this stuff on you know it was crazy to have somebody who was a part of it you know and also to have steve who's so connected to my mom in that part of my life that I felt like it was like I still had this kind of like rope, this kind of connection, and now that's, you know, it's mourning a lot of that. It's not just mourning Steve, but it's also mourning the connection that he had to my mom, my loving, sweet mama. Um, We could all learn a lot from Someone like Steve, and he has a book that will come out hopefully in the next few months. And there's some other things in the work that will hopefully be coming out about Steve's live in the next months or years. Um, he was an incredible human being and uh, an incredible pastor and an incredible friend uh, who went through hell and back and lived through hell and back and and showed me what the essence of humanity can be. This is not a, you know, not a bitter person, but how you can take all this horrific hell and suffering, even in the midst of suffering. Like we would talk sometimes, and he'd be like, "Buddy, I'm just too weak to go on. Do you mind if we, you know, put this off to later?" And I'm like, oh, "Of course not." You know, and it was really beautiful. Um, I'm grateful that what the friendship gave us both. I'm grateful that he loved my children so much. I'm grateful that he loved me so much. And uh, I'm really sad to have lost him. But, you know, it's part of life. We lose people and we have to, you know, kind of move forward with that. And we lose people who are very, very valuable to us. You know, it was neat because he would always remind me. He's like, you know, you got to remember the good work you've done, you know, for the community, for my community and things like that and how grateful we are. And, you know, he would say things to me that I would just sometimes forget that were part of my life and part of my, you know, he would remind me of not just bad things but good things, you know. And I feel like the world is full of people who want to remind you of the bad times or the mistakes or why your family's this or that, you know. And it just wasn't that way with him. He even had, you know, compassion towards my father and would try to help me understand what he was as a man and why his life was probably the way it was and why he was treating me the way he was, you know. We, you know and it wasn't one of those things where it was like he was trying to fix it. It's just we were throwing things out there, trying to figure things out. And that's a beautiful friendship to have. And I will miss... Um, my family Steve my friend Steve and um, I'll miss the humanity that we were able to share together you know you know he was there during heartbreak he was there during loss and death and there during just a lot of weird stuff and I'm grateful that he was there in the timing that he came back into my life i don't feel god very much you know to Be honest with you but it really was one of those things where us being together it felt like there was some sort of higher power at work <laughs> um not to say that i don't really believe in an inter- interventional god because i can't explain suffering but there was still a lot of suffering but somehow our lives worked out and maybe it was just my mom brought us together through history and time um but I'm grateful for that. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope that made sense because what I wanted to really put through is that all that feelings of not adding up, of not being good enough or smart enough or thinking all these awful things, you know, I still feel that every, lots of times. I still feel that with so many people in my life and people I work with. I still feel it when I'm preparing to talk on Sunday. But the point was, is with someone like Steve, I didn't feel it. You know, with someone like Steve, it just didn't matter. You know, and how great is that? And to know it, you know, it might might not matter to a lot of people, but to have made it made clear to you that like, you know, you're doing great work and overcoming all of that. You know, you've overcome all that bullshit. And he goes, "You know more about." He's like, "Look at what you know about Galatians." He's like, "I didn't know that. I was questioning you, and you were right." You know, I mean, like this constant like there was a lot of affirmation as well, and it was just. It's really cool to have somebody with with uh, with degrees and things like that supporting you loving you caring about you and encouraging you and um, being in your corner and um he really was uh, Zoe was another one of those people who's just really encouraging I'm usually not really good around encouraging people to be honest with you i'm very i don't take compliments very well it takes like a really weird person to be able to Encourage me, unfortunately, because it's just my mental health status. I do have self doubt and depression a lot. Um, so well done, Steve. You did a lived, a, lived an amazing life, man. You touched so many people's lives. I mean, you know, I don't think my mom would be celebrated as she is today had you choose paths not crossed. And I'm so grateful for that moment and everything it did. And in that moment in 1985, as like a nine-year-old kid, realizing by that very act of my mom doing that interview and it happening at that place, realizing that there is a love that is beyond fear. There is a love that is beyond telling other people what they can do or can't do. What's right or wrong, that there is a love that surpasses all that, a love that passes all like human understanding of, well, you can't do that because that's you two aren't supposed to talk. You're supposed to say this is a curse. You're not supposed to show compassion. And to see that was a big part of me and my nine year old Blaine, something kicking going like, if I ever go into this, this is part of it. You know, it's kicking against the pricks, it's not having the rules and the regulations and the dogma to get in the way there that love is always the, the, the main thing, that grace is going to be the ultimate concern. And love was going to, the grace and love are the ultimate concerns. And knowing that at nine years old, because Steve and my mom came together and had a conversation on television. Um, so that was such a big part of my life. Like it developed who I was. I mean, that's probably why I've done what I've done and gone away. I mean, all that. And of course, the prison and, all the other stuff, but it's just things, you know, steps built in your life. So I'm so grateful for that. So he has a freaking amazing legacy and, um, I'm glad to be part of that legacy. As far as his funeral, I know we are, um, talking right now that he's, about something in a few weeks in LA and then a couple other cities where there'll be memorial services. Um, I will post it on all my social media once I know what, what the plan is for his um, services and uh, keep you all on that loop. So I would just like to say thank you all for sticking with us through this and I'm glad that Steve has been a part of this community. He's been a leader in this community And he's spoken in this community, and if you go on to, uh, I'm sure Facebook, or or you go on to our Spotify, or our Apple stuff, or our iTunes, you can listen to talks that he gave at Revolution as well, and uh, celebrate his uh, work, and his life, and his legacy. Um, Because, you know, to have that type of faith, his faith was definitely stronger than mine, and he's been through way more than me, and, lot scarier stuff of just uh feeling the frig- fragility of humanity of of life um so thanks everybody hey if if you like what we're doing he would always push me to raise money so he would always say jay you got to raise money don't forget to raise money he would actually put the link up sometimes for the donation page <laughs> um because he wanted to make sure that we revolution could survive um So you can go to revolutionchurch.com. We have Venmo now, finally, and we have PayPal. You can do monthly donations. You can give one giant thing. You can call your millionaire friend and say, hey, give them a million dollars so they can just talk and not have to worry about this stuff. Um, So in honor of Steve, there I go. Please support Revolution financially. We need your help. So I will say it clearly this time. We need your help. We need your support to continue this work and to pay the people we do to make sure that all our finances are in the right line and do all this stuff. And if we ever wanna grow and get beyond where we're at right now, we've been ups and downs. If we wanna continue to evolve and move and change shapes as revolution does, we need your support uh, now more than ever. Um, I know it's tough for everybody out there, but I wanna do that. You can also retweet these things share them in your stories, share them on your Instagram, share them on your Facebook, share them on your Twitter, share them on your thread, share them on all that. All of our overlords uh, rule us and share them there. And we will maybe have a little bit of fighting the system within those systems. All right. love you so much. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.